I'm in Ojai, California. I'm not going anywhere. My tours are postponed till 2022 and 2023, but uh, you're not in Ketchikan. What's that about? You're still on... I'm an artist in residence here in Kansas, and, uh, you know, I'm in the other big K town, or K state. Wait. All right, anyways. Wait a minute. I'm in Kansas. (laughs) I'm in Kansas, and I'm having fun uh, here at Lester Ramer's Red Barn Studio. That's so awesome. And do you miss the horizontal rain and the beautiful old growth forests? Um, I'm only about two weeks into this, and no, I don't miss it so much. It's <laughs> nice to actually have a break. But, you know, today yeah. the weather changed, and it's in the 70s. It's quite pleasant. So, oh, awesome. Yeah. Well, you know, it's uh, conversations really get dull when you start talking about the weather. <laughs> <laughs> so do podcasts, man. Now, I got a question here. Um. We are paleo nerds, right? Yes, we are. Now, the opposite of the paleo diet is what kind of diet? <laughs> All right, that's uh, the vegan diet, or, or the well, yeah, or... well, it's it's yeah, it's kind of less animal protein. But you had your very first experience of a what a Beyond Burger, Impossible Burger last night. Well, that's right. I guess you, I did tell you that before. And yes, Michelle and I. Made a couple of Impossible Burgers, and I gotta say, we're 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 converted, man. What I say, well, I mean, they're I say really indistinguishable. They're really tasty. They're, you know, I couldn't really tell the difference. Michelle says she caught a difference, but you know, they were tasty. They were really good. So yeah, um, yeah. I I love it. I don't think I'll ever buy ground beef again. And you know that the greatest the greatest contribution to global heating is that 40% of our land mass is being used to cultivate beef. And it's just a waste, a waste, uh, and so much carbon. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I got to say, there's one thing about the Impossible Burger that I found a little off-putting was... Me too. It came too. in a the giant plastic, the plastic thing. Plastic packaging. It's like it's What's ultra that about? plastic and little... It's like, whoa. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. a no, conflicting I, I, thing there, man. Very, very angry about that. So, let's uh, write letters. Well, let's... Let's write letters. Okay. So, uh, well, good. I'm glad that you are converted. And, uh, well, you know, I, I they, they, they sell ground impossible burger uh, so you can make spaghetti well, and all that stuff. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'll look for that. Oh, yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. So, paleo news. In paleo news, Dave, there is this cool creature that was found right next to the Burgess Shale, about the same age, 508 million years or so. Have you heard about Titanocories? Yeah, well, you know, I don't know if I'm just because I'm a nerd, I get it in my news feed. It came in about 10 times over two or three days. It's this giant uh, shield-like creature with crab-like looks, front bits. It looks like a swimming taco shell with arms. Yes, yes. Upside down taco That's shell. That's right. Upside down taco shell with arms. But it is, uh, it's a predator and it's big, titanocories. And you know that we referred to it earlier in one episode. I saw... You know, they've been working on this for a few years, but they finally published it. Right. And so this thing is a predator, and it's big compared to the Burgess Shale creatures, which are like, you know, three, four, five centimeters. They're they're tiny, most of the Burgess Shale, except for Anomalcaris was the biggest one until Titano, what? Titanocories. Titanocories. So this is uh, swimming around in the water column with Anomalcaris, too, munching on those. How big was Anomalcaris? Munching on trilobites and stuff, man. 
<laughs> a number of carries, uh, about a meter long is the biggest they got. Three feet. So that's three feet. Okay. Although I think they've got hints of bigger ones from China about the same period. But yeah, so that's pretty mind-blowing. This big animal that they didn't know was there. So Yeah. Yeah, but you know what's great is a discovery will take place 10 years ago. It'll take three or four years to excavate it out of the matrix and then three or four years to write a paper and finally publish it. So it's funny, these these brand new discoveries are sometimes 10 years old. Well, that's kind of the scientific process. So we saw pictures of this animal a few years back, you know, somebody like, right. and like, ooh, what is that? So for instance, I saw a picture of a shark on the web the other day, Tychotis. And I'm so excited. The Tychotis fossils are found everywhere, and they finally found a complete one. They've been finding the teeth of this giant shark for a long time, like here in Kansas. And, right. and nobody knows what shape the body was, and they finally found a beautiful specimen. So I'm waiting for that one to come out. I'm excited about that. Cool. One. Very cool. Very cool. And I'm excited for today's guest <gasps> because today's guest, her studies, yeah. Julie Meachin, her studies represent moments in time. I love. I love when a moment, a fossil, is a moment in time, a Thursday at 2, 2 p.m. Well, I love that idea. And well, how, what, 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 how, you're looking at me, you're looking at me like... I don't see how a giant hole in the ground that traps animals for tens of thousands of years is a moment in time. It's a lot of moments well, in time. Yeah, but I'm going to ask her, I'm sure that some animal fell in, broke its leg, didn't die... Uh, that that minute but lingered for a week and then died in a death position I, I know that a lot of the bones are disarticulated but they have found some complete skeletons and i want to ask her about that. and we're talking about the natural trap cave in southern wyoming and we're going to get right to that but first off i want to get a little of her background story she's a very oh, interesting course. scientist and she's at des moines university so yeah. Shall we call her up, Dean? Uh, yeah, let's call her up. With I've got a one can with a piece of string, and I've uh, I've put it all the way over to, to Des Moines, Iowa. Des Moines, Iowa. Call her up, man. Hey, Dave, meet Julie Meachin, vertebrate paleontologist and associate professor of anatomy at Des Moines University. So, hey, Julie, nice to meet you, and meet my friend Dave. Hey, great to meet you both. Yeah, hi, Julie. The real question is, at the top of this interview, are you a paleo nerd? I am a paleo nerd, of course. <laughs> well, we like that. You're proud to be a paleo nerd, too, I'll bet, huh? Uh, I am. I am. I love paleontology. So when did that whole thing start for you? Or were you a dinosaur-loving kid like me, or...? Oh my goodness, so that's really funny. Um, I actually was not a dinosaur crazy kid. I have always been a mammal crazy kid. Oh. So um, from the time oh. that I was a little tiny kid, um, when I was super young, I grew up in Chicago, and uh, my folks used to take me to the Field Museum. And the dinosaurs weren't my biggest favorite thing. The thing oh, that really? I really loved were the taxidermied animals. Me too. Yes! The halls of taxidermy. I I, I spent my high school years in Chicago, so I, I have that same field museum experience. Yeah, so I've always been mammal crazy. Always wow. been a mammal girl. So like the dioramas, the bison, the pronghorn leaping, and ah, that's what got you into it. So so yeah. so the love of mammals, and and then you went to Mammal University or something? You studied mammals <laughs> as an undergrad or what? Oh, what happened? Sorry, I'm fast forwarding kind of a, here. It was kind of a windy road, actually. Um, I 
thought, you know, as a kid, I didn't know I could be a mammal paleontologist. I thought the only thing you could do with mammals was be a vet. And wow. so I actually went to a special high school um, to train at a vet's office. And after I did that, I realized I didn't want to be a vet. So I was kind of confused <laughs> when I started college. I went to the University of Florida. Okay. Um, and uh, I was confused about what I wanted to do. I knew I still wanted to work with animals, but I knew I didn't want to be a vet. So um, I actually saw an ad uh, for Help Wanted in the Vertebrate Paleontology Collection at the Florida Museum. Really? And I was like, oh, my God, I think that's what I want to do. And so um, funnily enough, I did not get the job, but I started volunteering. Um, at the Museum of uh, yes. Paleontology there? Yes. And after that, I was hooked. Just hooked. Wow. wow. But actually, wow. back in the childhood for just one minute, being a yeah. mammal crazy person, loving these dioramas, did you have all kinds of cats and dogs at your house? Are you a mammal keeping person? Um, I am now. I have two big dogs. I love dogs. Um, my parents always had dogs. Um, and then I also had a cat as a kid. Um, but uh, I think we, we never had a menagerie. And that was mostly, you know, due to my parents. They didn't want all the pets. Good. So... But I always loved animals. I loved I loved all kinds of so animals. So then you didn't stuff your family pets then? <laughs> no, oh, I didn't. That, I didn't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that'd be kind of... So I, at, at the university there, I know that uh, when I was reading up a little bit of your background, you got to go out in some paleo digs, and one, on one of your first digs, you found a giant ground sloth, but it's actually the biggest ground sloth ever found. Is that true? I don't know if it's the biggest, but it's one of the biggest. It's wow. um, it's a I think it's an Arematherium. Um, it's on display at the Florida Museum of Natural History. Oh, um, and so that was one of the first major paleo digs that I participated in. It was so much fun. But Florida being basically a giant sandy cave, what kind of deposition would this uh, sloth be in that would preserve it? Uh, so it was in a, a limestone quarry, and it was a lot of clay, oh. a lot of clay. Um, so sort of clay, silty sediment. And Florida is actually really well known for its mammal fossils, for its Pliocene and Pleistocene mammal fossils. So this was, this was you know par for the course for a Florida dig. And um, uh, it was great. It was super awesome. Arematherium is so cool. The big, big claws and all that, you know. Wow. The uh, And then you ended up out of the Hagerman fossil beds at some point too. Can you tell us what the Hagerman fossil beds are? Yeah. So um, so Hagerman is a, is a site out in, um, in Idaho near Twin Falls. Um, it's a national monument it's basically like a bunch of sand dunes. It's a bunch of sandy hills. Um, and then the fossils are found in these little blowouts that you basically have to prospect. So you basically are walking up and down these sand dunes looking for any trace of a fossil. And then when you find some, you basically kneel down and you start, you know, excavating a little bit. Um, and, and they're all, um, they're all Blancan um, in age. So they're all sort of that um, Pliocene, um, late Pliocene age stuff. Mostly um, horses, right? Or mostly horses at the Hagerman? So there's lots of horses there, but they have lots of other stuff too. And they have lots of carnivores as well. Oh, ah. Yeah. Is this an ancient uh, freshwater lake shore? Yes. So that's what they think it was. Right. That's what they think Hagerman right. was. That's why, that's why the sand dunes. Yeah. Yes. Well, before yeah. we dive into the big topic that we want to talk about. No. Before we fall into oh, the big topic. Oh, 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 oh,
Oh, I see. Which we're going to fall into the NTC, but more about that in just a moment. But you are teaching at Des Moines University, and basically that's a that's a medical uh, university. Uh, so you're teaching doctors, and what's a paleontologist doing teaching at a medical? She's touching dead people for money, Ray. <laughs> that is accurate. I do oh. touch dead people for money. Oh. Um, but uh, but okay. actually, it's really amazing that most, a lot of paleontologists actually teach at medical schools. Um, we're all in an anatomy, anatomy. department. Yeah, and that's because um, we're one of the only groups of people that are still classically trained in anatomy. Um, the other group being mm. the biological anthropologists. So it's us and the bioanth people that are staffing the anatomy departments at most medical schools. But you're concurrent in it. That's the thing. You're constantly. You you, you didn't learn it ten years ago, and you're teaching it. You're you're concurrently studying anatomy. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. We just we just do it every day. So. Um, and it's a, that's so it's cool. amazing the number of people that just don't get basic anatomy, and that basically vertebrates are built the same. You know, built in the same body plan and radius ulna, femur, you know, tibia, fibia. Well, Ray, if you look, if you look at your face, this is your coccyx. What? Right what? <laughs> Sorry, I pointed to his oh. Anyway, let's oh, move on. Oh, man, but I think well, that is I... so cool that you're teaching anatomy. And I'm wondering, though, do, do you every now and then, like, derail some of these young medical students and veer them off into paleontology? Peel them I off? don't. I wish I could. I've had a couple of students come out into the field with me, and they are so, uh, like, enamored with it. They love it. But it's more of like a curiosity to them rather mm. than, you know, something they decide they want to do. Well, I mean, they're already in medical school. They've already took, taken all the exams. They've already passed all the tests. They've already paid all the money. Um, they generally don't change their mind about what they want to do by the time they're here. But they do really find what I do exciting. So um, and I have my first um, thesis master student this semester. So I am training oh. future paleontologists now. Oh, that's cool. That's awesome. That is so great. Giving yeah. back. All right, Ray. So what is an NTC, Ray? Natural. What is the NTC? Natural Trap Cave. I actually had the opportunity to go there with Dr. Kirk Johnson about the year 2000 or so. And I think one of the scariest things about Natural Trap Cave is actually the road to Natural Trap Cave. Because yes. <laughs> that's where I really yes. feared for my life. But we finally got up to this spot. But... I should not be the one describing what Natural Trap Cave is. We should let Julie tell us. What, what, what is this thing in Wyoming? So it is an 80-foot deep sinkhole. Um, it's, it's in the limestone, so it's all karst topography up there. And this is um, a sinkhole that formed sometime before about 110,000 years ago. So we don't know exactly when it formed, but we know it formed before that. Basically, the limestone dissolved underneath this cavern, and it formed this giant bell-shaped cavern. It's at the end of a ridge, so it's basically at the end of a little hill, and then the hill drops down, and there's the hole for Natural Trap Cave. The opening is about 20 feet in diameter. With a giant metal grate over the top, so we can't Right, well, in. now you can't. <laughs> I stood on that. That's what I did, yeah. I, oh. But, um... Did you spit into it, oh, Ray? Dave, <laughs> no. I was with a doctor. He said, no, I couldn't do that. But, but okay. crazy, it's sort of like, it's sort of like a, shaped like a beer bottle or something. You know, it's narrow, and then it widens, and then it I does. was able to look down. The road up to it was super scary, because you're just, you know, it's like in the cartoons. The truck could go down the hill anytime. 
But when you get up there, it's it's basically a big hole into which mammals have been dropping for a hundred thousand years, right? Yes, and um, yeah, the road is scary. They've actually improved the road, thank goodness. But yeah, so the inside of Natural Trap is about as big as a football field. It's pretty big wow. inside. Wow. Yeah. How does an animal end up down in a hole? What is the scenario that you envision? Yeah, so since it basically is a hole that comes right after a big hill, what we envision is basically um, carnivores chasing herbivores, right? They're sort of running. uh, One's running for their dinner. The other's running for their life. And they're not really paying attention to where they're going. And they come over this little ridge, and they don't see the hole, and in they go. And so... We've got lots of carnivores, and that's so that's one of our thoughts, is that almost not quite one-to-one. Um, it's about one carnivore to every three herbivores we have, so it's clearly an event where, where carnivores are coming in fairly regularly. And what is the predator-prey relationship in the ecology outside of the cave? What would it be, one to ten? I yeah, mean... probably something more like that, maybe uh, one carnivore right. to every ten herbivores. So there is a, there's a high carnivore ratio in the but cave. But I, I, I thought maybe part of that would be the smell of the cave bringing, like La Brea, bringing predators in, oh. and their curiosity getting like, what's down there? It could be, um, although I wonder. I mean, it's so far down, it's probably it was probably pitch black looking to most of the carnivores. So they may or may not have decided to jump in. If they did, that would have been a really bad move because they probably would have broken their legs. But you mentioned uh, the snow cone of hypothesis. Uh, I think that was by uh, Larry Martin, one of the so. first discoverers or investigators of the cave. Uh, explain the snow cone hypothesis, which would possibly give a predator the ability to get down in there without hurting himself. Yeah. So the snow cone hypothesis, yeah, was put forward by Larry Martin, was that um, in the Pleistocene, it would have been much colder and snow would have accumulated in the cave in sort of a cone fashion because of how snow would fall into a narrow opening and then sort of make this cone shape. And um, as it turns out, our team, so we're actually publishing a big compendium on Natural Trap Cave in Quaternary International. Oh, really? It should come out next year, we're hoping. Cool. But our stratigrapher, Dave Lovelace, um, and I have been working on this, and we're not sure there was actually a snow cone there. We think water would have done a lot of the movement that they think the snow cone did. So um, it's possible if the snow cone was there that animals would have had like a cushion to fall on, but we're not so sure there actually was a snow cone. Oh, that's interesting. If I could, for just a moment, I want to give a shout out to Larry Martin because I'm back in Kansas. And when I was in high school in Kansas, there was a fellow that hired me to do illustrations for his film strips that he did for uh, local schools. Remember Remember, those? Yeah, film strips, (laughs) educational film strips, colorful Kansas films. And this fellow, Harold Caldwell, hired me to be the the artist. And Larry Martin was the first scientist to ever actually critique my artwork. And to uh, critique I, it. Yes. Well, I drew these pictures of mammoths and you know, in this and mastodons, and I I I was only in high school, but we made a journey up to KU to meet with Larry Martin. He was my first paleontologist I ever met, actually. Oh wow. And he was a big guy, you know, and uh but he also told me that my Pleistocene landscape was maybe incorrect. 
It's not like today that I needed more trees yeah. and all that kind of thing. The trunk, but, the trunk goes on the front. Of but anyways, Larry, Larry was a cool guy, and he was actually very much an expert on short-faced bears and yeah. also saber-toothed uh, cats and tigers. But anyways, a shout-out to Larry. I, I've got to get back all to right, NTC. Right. Well, we're back in the NTC. Yeah, I've got so many questions. How deep is the deposition layer? And, and do you have a date from the earliest to the latest? And then the other thing is, what's the orientation of fossils? Is there a large amount outside the snow cone? If there was a snow cone, is it all directly below the hole? But basically those three questions, deposition layer, how deep, <laughs> the date, and the distribution of, of fossils, because you used a GPS to do that. We sort of did. You, GPS doesn't work in the cave. You can use GPS on the surface. Yeah, you established a yeah. point, then you used a surveyor instrument to work around that Right. Point. So I would say, um, so we didn't do most of the excavating for depth. That was mostly done in the 70s and 80s by, by the Martin Gilbert team. And um, it's like nine feet deep. Like they dug a pit like nine feet deep, and they were still pulling fossils out. Wow. So uh, most of our digging has been, I mean, we've gone down about three or four feet, I think, in our excavations. And most of our excavations have been on the periphery of their original excavations because the initial dig pit kind of got filled in with sediment and it, it's sort of undiggable. You'd need like a backhoe to get all the sediment out of the, the main nine foot deep pit. Is that directly That's below directly the hole? directly below the right. hole. And so we basically go out on the periphery and we're still finding lots of fossils. So our stuff has been dated from about, oh, I'd say about 40, about 40 to 45,000 years old is the oldest dates we have. Um, and then the youngest dates we have are, we go all the way up to the modern and we have um, stuff all throughout the Holocene um, from like 8,000 years to 3,000 years and stuff still falls in today. So there's wow. still deposition. What's the largest, what's the largest recent mammal or animal? Um, a bison, the largest recent Recent oh, wow. animal is a bison, um, and that um, those fell in in the Holocene, um, and then a cow actually fell in prior to oh. the grate being put on in the seventies. Um, oh, so a cow great. fell in. <laughs> See what I did there. Um, a coyote had fallen in, um, and then now today, little things still fall in. So we've got pack rats, um, deer mice, snakes birds that still fall in wow. so what is what wow. is the rate of animals falling in the larger mammals is that like once a year i mean over a hundred thousand years you're seeing a, is it like every month there's an animal that goes in or do you, do you have any kind of calculation on that we don't and and that's simply because um we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of everything that's in there so xiaoming wang said that you could dig for a hundred years and not get to the bottom and that's probably wow. true um, so we, we just don't know what the rate of deposition was. But, you know, just given what we know from, from today's animals, every season when we come back, there's at least two or three freshly dead animals that are in there. So two or three a year. At so least. are the animals articulated? I mean, these older animals that they've been torn apart by predators. What happens in the cave? What's the scenario? What's it like? Describe what happens as an animal falls in and what's. Well, yeah, what? I have a question on okay. that. I have a follow-up to I'm that. Fo oh, I'm asking the question first, Dave. <laughs> yield the floor. Yield okay. the floor. I Thank yield. you. I yield. <laughs> okay. So, so that's a great question. So the animals are not articulated when we find them. And that was been, that's been a huge conundrum for us. Like, why 
these animals should just fall in and that yeah. should be it. There's no predators right. in there. It's right. 80 feet deep. We think it actually is, we think there's a lot of water movement. We think there's a lot of uh, movement from precipitation. We think there might have been flowing water in a cavern underneath the cave. Um, and so we think things get broken up by water a lot. And we mm. think that's part of it. There have been a few articulated specimens and and oftentimes we'll find like two or three bones from the same individual right next to each other, but then nothing else. Wow. And uh, with a couple of exceptions, um, we had a wolverine that's mostly articulated. We have um, a fox that was almost but completely recent, articulated. A recent wolverine? No, no, no. A Pleistocene wolverine. Oh. Do any of them have chew marks on them? Like there was something alive down there? That No. Everything no. that falls in dies. Maybe, yeah. Well, my question is, is there any evidence of a death pose, any animal that possibly survived the fall and lingered? There's nothing? So... There are some animals in places, there are specimens been been found in places in the cave where you would not expect them to be found if they just fell in and died immediately. So That's so sad. That's so, so sad. So natural trap kind of slopes down, and the original excavations dug a test pit at the bottom of the slope and found some stuff. So the thought is that they probably did, like some animals probably did stagger around in there with like broken limbs and possibly starve to death. So, yeah, I mean... This it, is, oh. it is really pretty. It's a grim, it's a death cave, the cave of it death. Is. Once it you is. go in, there's no way out, man. Right, it's there true. There is no I, way out. There's no exit, right? You fall into this hole, that's it. Which brings us to Ooh. the very quick question is you have to rappel in using very expert cave... Cavers, yeah. Ca yeah, cavers. So you have to uh, go in there by repelling with cave experts that help you get in and out. And then any material has to be pulled out. And uh, how long does it take to get in? And how long does it take yeah, to get out? you guys camp down there? We don't camp in the cave. We camp at the surface. No, we camp at the surface. Yeah, so I'd like to give a shout out to our lead caver, Juan Layden. He's basically the guy who helps us with everything. He's our... our he's in that video, he is. right? He's the, yeah. He's a really nice rancher, a Wyoming guy. He's a Wyoming guy. He's not a rancher, <laughs> but he is a Wyoming guy. Oh. Yeah, and he um, he's a, a single rope technique expert, a vertical caving expert. Um, he gets us in and out, and it takes... A lot less time to get in. I'd say it takes about, I'd say less than five minutes to get in. Gravity's right. helping. Um, and then to get out, it, it depends on on your level of, of expertise with climbing, with climbing rope. So uh, Juan and other cavers can get out in about two minutes. Wow. Yeah, about two minutes. But you're using some sort of a cinch type yeah, thing? What's it it's, called? A it's cinch an ascender. Winch? So basically you use ascender, an ascender. Right. Um, so it just goes one way and then it sort of hangs yeah. there. And it's a it's called a frog is how we get out. And it's basically like you're doing squats and thrusts like you're basically um, pushing up, um, pulling your legs right. up and then using your legs to push yourself up again. So Got it. Um, and, and so it's so I take about five or six minutes to get out and people who have a little bit more trouble can take anywhere from eight to ten. <laughs> I was right. wondering, does anyone ever like freak out? going into the cave and then like, I can't handle this. Can I get out of here? So it's more freaking out um, on rope. So once they're in the cave, people are usually pretty chill because it's such a big cavern that there's not a lot of claustrophobia. But people have freaked out coming down on rope. Um, but really people freak out more going up 
And we've had to do a few um, little minor rescues to basically get people out. <laughs> I think that would be the case with yeah. me. I'd probably be the guy. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, I don't like heights either. Hey, could you tell us what are the creatures? What are the what are the creatures that are typically found in the cave? Or walk yeah. us through the timeline of the deepest, and you see things disappear. Do you find mammoths at the bottom and? all the way up or what so we have a we basically have a pleistocene fauna and a holocene fauna um and our pleistocene fauna um, does include mammoths but we don't have very many of them mm. and i think that's because mammoths probably didn't mammoths don't run very much right. elephants and mammoths don't run so i think they probably knew the hole was there and avoided it um so i only know of one or two mammoths specimens that were found in the cave okay. Um, but we've got lots of other ungulates. We have lots of things that run. So we have pronghorn. We have bighorn sheep. We have lots of horses. That's probably our most wow. numerous animal. And we have two different genera. We have um, the equus uh, that was there, and we have Harrington hippus, which is the stilt-legged horse. That's cool. Um, and we also have um, camels and bison and buotherium which is the muskox oh um nice. yeah and we have um we have lots of carnivores we have the short-faced bear although not Excellent. many of those arctotus yeah arctotus and we have um lots of wolves we have lots of american cheetahs miracinonics lots of them huh that's of that they are they and wolves are the two most numerous carnivores we have oh, i didn't know that um, and we have. Are, is it the dire wolf? It's. Um, we do have dire wolves, but they're super rare. We really have a lot of the Beringian wolf, which is basically the extinct version of the gray wolf. Right, Canis lupus. How about and lions? Have you got lions. lions. You must yep. have lions. Yep, we have American, American lions. lions, and um, we have. <clears throat> excuse me, we have wolverines. Wait, are you telling the truth about the American lions? Yeah. She must be lying. Ha! I see what. Yeah. That was so bad. I get, that that gets edited. That out. was a softball. No, I like that. That was a little softball. I got it. I got it. Uh, Julie, you were kind of slow in the uptake there. Sorry. I did. So, I got it. I got it. Yeah. Got right. It. So, and you must have uh, besides the short faced bear, you have black bears and brown bears. We do not. We don't have any other no. bears. Oh. Wow. Um, That's interesting. No. We have wolverines, which don't exist in that area anymore. We have. Um, or the muskox. No, the muskox doesn't either, right? Um, we have uh, a couple foxes, and we have um, we found our first lynx. Oh, was it missing oh. before that? Oh my gosh! Let me. I know this is a dumb question, but you've never found a primate, a human, in there. Nope. That would be nope. a big, big deal if you did. We, it would, and, and we'd actually get shut down. So oh, all right, then, all right. I'm oh. glad we haven't found oh. any humans yet. I'm hoping right, we don't. Right. Fingers crossed. Right. So how far deep do you think the deposition goes? I know you said forever, but seriously, what, what do you think? Yeah, so... Um, Can you tell by the, the shape of the sculpting of the inside where a possible cave floor might be? No, I wish. Wow. Um, right. it, we, just, we just can't. I, I don't know exactly how far down it goes. The Martin and Gilbert team... Um, hypothesized that they'd find things as old as 110,000 years old toward the bottom of the deposit. We haven't even gotten close. So I, I don't know. Couldn't say. Wow. Is most of the, the original uh, Martin's team, Martin and who else was it? 
Miles Gilbert from the University of Missouri. Where is, did they take all those bones out of there? Where do these bones go in, in collections? Where are they? They're at the University of Kansas from the original um, excavations. And now oh. our excavations from 2014 on are at the University of Wyoming. Oh, excellent. So they're staying there in the state. Yes. So, of course, the big question is, you know, you are able to see with 100,000 years worth of animals piling up, there's an arrival of a primate uh, that happens in North America, a, re a return of primates to North America, i.e. humans. You're able to see the Pleistocene extinction in there and the great Pleistocene extinction, but you're also looking at climate change as well at the same time with pollen, right? Yes. So yes. it's the big question in paleontology, what caused that big extinction? Wait, wait, Ray, this is my question well, at the I end, know. Ray. One, <laughs> one, maybe you need to modify your question at the end. Well, I'm sure that this is, you are looking at, in your work, you're able to see a change. Is it dramatic or is it gradual, I guess would be my question. Do you see a change in the fauna, you know, the megafauna disappearing and you've also got microfossils of smaller mammals and birds and that kind of thing. So I'm sure yeah. you're really wondering, you know, we all want to know what's the change that you see. So we do see change. Um, unfortunately, we have some layers missing, much mm. to our chagrin. Um, the extinction event is actually missing. So we've got We've got a 13,000-year date um, or about a 15,000-year date, and then we don't have anything until about 8,000 years. What? Yeah, Why? I don't know, and this is one of our mysteries that we're trying to figure out. Did Larry Martin take it? <laughs> I don't think so, but you never know, right? No, I'm hey, kidding. Hey, I'm in um, Kansas. I'll go check. Right. Um, so we do see a big change then. We see basically no more megafauna. The only large animal that's still there is a, is a modern bison. Um, and then we see a lot of uh, microfauna. So a lot of the change we see is in the microfauna. We do have a different fauna from the Pleistocene than we have from the Holocene, but it is a gradual change. It is not a, it's not an abrupt change. So it's clear that the same types of animals are still in the area, but some animals have left or died off um, depending upon the climate, the environmental changes. We do see changes in pollen. So we do see these fluctuations in pollen of pine and grass and things like that, um, the sagebrush, all those things. So we do see changes through time for sure. They're just gradual, I would say, more than abrupt. In your 40,000 years, can you see the, I think there's four or five glaciations in that time. Can you see the ecology of the differences in, in pollen and microfossils during those Nebraskan, Kansan, Wisconsinan. Hello there. Yeah, the Wisconsinonian. How do you say Wisconsinonian? Wisconsinan. That's the last that's the last Wisconsinian. Wisconsinan. Yeah. Let's all try that. <laughs> yeah. Hey, how about a beer? A Wisconsin. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, do, do you find the different, is there evidence of the ecology change? There is more evidence um, from the pollen of the ecology changing than there is from even the microfossils. Um, so basically the, the environment there has always been kind of more open and dry. 
But within that sort of open, dry framework, it has changed a bit over those last glaciations. And we do see that with the pollen. And do you study phytoliths as well? Is that included in the uh, We data? have not studied phytoliths yet, no. But you are able yeah. to take the bones and look at the DNA, of course, and yes. you are also able to look at the geochemistry of the bones and see what animals are eating, right? Yes. Yeah, we're doing that. Those studies are underway. That's pretty, that's really fascinating. Was this, uh, you have risen to the rank of being the, the director of the the digs there, right? Is that? Yes. Yeah, I am the PI. I've, I actually have always been the PI. Yeah, the lead investigator. Um, so I've always been the lead investigator there, but it's just that we've been doing it for a long time now, so everybody knows about it. <laughs> so, well, how does that happen? You wrote the, you were the one who wrote the grant and you assembled the team. Yeah. So, um, originally it was me and, um, a colleague from Australia, Alan Cooper, who, um, who started this project and, uh, I, I wrote the grant, Alan, Alan wrote the ancient DNA part of the grant. We assembled the team we got the permits, I got the permits from the Bureau of Land Management. And as the project has gone on, it's sort of blown up into a much bigger project than we initially had um, had thought of. And as time has also gone on, Alan has um, dropped off the project. So it's basically just me. And now I actually do have a, a co-PI who's studying all the microfauna, Jenny McGuire. Where's Jenny? She's, she's at Georgia Tech. What are you finding through the DNA analysis? So the DNA analyses are really interesting. So um, one of Alan's former postdocs is in charge of doing DNA analyses now. Um, his name is Kieran Mitchell. And Kieran and I have been working on several different projects. So we've been looking at ungulates a little bit, but we've mostly been focusing on the carnivores. And the wolves are the big thing that we're working on right now. So our project with wolf DNA is underway. And one of the things that came out of that was they found dire wolves there and we were able to do the dire wolf genome for the nature paper that came out um, in, I believe it was December of last year or January of this year, basically showing the dire wolves aren't gray wolves. They're not even closely related to gray wolves. Hmm. And then the other cool thing is that we're looking at the DNA of the Beringian wolf in um, North America in the lower 48, which turns out to be different than any wolf DNA out there so far. So there's like a subspecies between the Beringia wolf and the dire wolf, right? The third. Um, so actually, dire wolves are like a completely different genus now. Um, are they're they right? Three million years separated. And so hmm. the Beringian wolf is like a, is like a subspecies of the gray wolf that came over from Eurasia. And um, what we're finding is the one that's in Natural Trap Cave is really interesting. And I'm not going to give it away here, but <gasps> it might be related to coyotes. Um, it might be related to red wolves. So it's it's kind of wow. cool. We're we're really excited about it. That's kind of tantalizing. Wow. You're teasing us now. Huh. <laughs> interesting. Wow. How accessible is the cave if if a tourist wanted to go, like, look in the cave, uh, is this all on the down low? You no. don't want people to, I mean, obviously, you can't. well, you, I've you, been you, there. I was treacherous Ray, to get there. But... Yeah, but, yeah, no, but, Ray, you stood on the grate. If you want to get into the cave, you well, have to have course. a couple of days of cave Oh, no, I'm cave, not, cave I'm not saying that, but I'm just wondering. And rope, rope I'm work. wondering with the grant work, there must be some sort of public outreach component to it that you need to let people know about this work. And where would I see an interpretation of the cave? Or is there something anywhere near the cave? Is there any interpretive sign work or anything like that? Or is 
University of Wyoming, museum-wise? So I'll answer your first question first. To get into the cave, you have to have a permit. Right. Um, so I have a permit. I'm the only current permit holder. So nobody else besides BLM or me can get into the cave. And so, so we basically are the ones, the gatekeepers. Um, I do make people get trained before they go in. Yeah, so the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, has a sign right at the cave. You probably saw it when you were there. But it, it, it's really basic. It just describes what the cave is. It doesn't really go into a lot of detail about it. I have been doing outreach. Um, I'm mostly doing it with um, like uh, school age kids. Um, and then uh, we did an outreach paper uh, talking about all the things we've done with school aged kids. For the outreach for the site, that's really up to the Bureau of Land Management. But the University of Wyoming Museum is doing an exhibit on natural traps. So they are eventually going to do an oh, exhibit. Great. Yeah. I don't know if you've uh, seen my uh, little drawing that I did, 40,000 mammals can't be wrong. Yes, I have seen your drawings, yeah, yeah. That's great. So I'm just wondering. We will have that. Maybe uh, maybe you need a t-shirt at some point, you know, just saying. Uh, yeah, that would be amazing. I would <laughs> definitely take a t-shirt. So I, I have a really silly question, but it's practical. Uh, how many hours would you spend uh, in there during the day? Would it be, you know, eight to six type thing? Obviously, you want sunlight, natural light. But then how do you uh, go to the bathroom? Would you, is there some kind of a... Um, like, well, most climbers, most climbers have bags mm -hmm. that you have to carry out when you're on a wall. So so we spend about six hours in there. Um, actually, it ends up being about eight with all the getting people in and getting people out. Um, right. And yeah, we have to go to the bathroom in there. And so um, <laughs> hilariously, I make guys bring their own porta potties. They basically bring empty Gatorade bottles they use. Right. Um, for right. gals, we actually... <laughs> don't, don't confuse... Uh -huh. The Gatorade. Don't, confuse them. <laughs> Don't bring yellow Gatorade down. Like that's basically uh -huh. the yeah, rule, yeah. you know. Um, for the gals, we we have a litter box. Um, that's what I call it. I call it the litter box. It's a bucket with a garbage bag liner, um, kitty litter, right. and a toilet seat on it. Right. And so that's yeah, great. so that's what no, we that's use. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm curious great. too. How comfortable is it down there? Is it cold or like can it get hot or? What happens when it rains? 10, degree, 10 degrees, which is about 47. Wait, what's 10 degrees? Celsius. Yeah. Yeah. So it's cooler Celsius. down there? It's like, yeah, it's like 42 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, we're both wrong. 10 degrees Celsius is 50 degrees Fahrenheit. And if you want to figure this out on your own, the conversion is pretty easy. You basically take your Celsius temperature, double it, and then add 30. You get your approximate Fahrenheit. So, for example... 10 degrees Celsius, double it is 20 degrees, add 30, that's 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Pretty much works every time, and you don't have to rely on Mr. Google. And when it rains, uh, you got to shut it all down? Um, no, actually, um, because the rain only comes in this little, this little funnel, and um, usually people aren't digging right underneath the hole, and so you, we can keep digging if it rains. The only time we make people get out of the dig zone is if people are coming in and out because rocks can drop from the top mm. and rocks right. falling 80 feet will do a real number on your head. So, so everybody's got hard hats on down there, obviously. So Caving helmets, yeah. I'll bet, you, I'll bet the sound of thunder sounds awesome when you're in there. It does. It sounds really cool. I've been in there during a really awful rainstorm before, and you can hear everything, but like you're completely protected. There's no wind. So it's kind of trippy when there's a thunderstorm on the surface and you're in the cave. Wow, is it, are there cool echoes? Could my band play down there maybe someday? 
There's not a lot of echo. I mean, no? your band could play in there, but it wouldn't echo like you would think, right? Ray, it's it's a round Roman amphora. Um, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, all right. Yeah, okay. Huh. Interesting. <laughs> Back to uh, some of the large megafauna. So you said there, you you didn't find the two mammoths, no. but wouldn't those be massive bones? Were they taken out by uh, the Larry Martin excavation? Yeah, they were. And I, you know, they had a scaffolding that they used to get up and down. Oh, so I right, don't know right. what their method of getting things in and out was. They probably had people carry them up. I was going to say, uh, Larry was not a little guy, so I can't imagine. So they built a stairway all the way down. Uh, they did. And that was dismantled oh. and taken away. Yes. Actually, one of the cool things about I know there's been work on um, the evolution of uh, cheetahs, and you're finding mm-hmm. a lot of cheetahs in there. One of the cool things, I think, one of the aspects of uh, you know pronghorns being chased by cheetahs, yeah. and Kirk Johnson and I would talk about this when we went to Natural Trap Cave. He talked that pronghorns are still... You know, they are hyper fast because it's as if they're still being chased by cheetahs. And that's why they evolved that. that well, you mean what you're saying is that the extant pronghorns now today are faster than any animal. Any because of the cheetahs that yeah. used to chase them, which is right, kind of a right. poetic kind of thing. But but perhaps cheetahs looked like maybe they evolved in North America, eh? So we are actually so funny. You should ask about this. We're actually studying this question right now. Um, my uh, my my master's student is actually looking at the um, American cheetah and figuring out exactly what its extent was in North America, whether there might be some mistaken cases of identity as a puma for American cheetah. Mm. And um, also um, my collaborator Penny Higgins and I are looking at whether cheetahs actually ate pronghorn or not. And so oh, really? whether, whether yeah, so whether that that just so story of the evolution of, of pronghorns being fast because they're being chased by cheetahs is is actually truth or not. Oh. I so, see. You can put two together. If you look at the what the, che- the cheetahs were eating by the geochemistry, you can see if there's... Of the teeth. You can see yeah. if there is, any, well, just anywhere in their bones, the essence of pronghorn would be there, right? Yes. So basically, we have to look at pronghorn values, um, geochemical values, and then we look at the cheetah geochemical values. And if they overlap, then you've got the evidence for it. And this little little story of my co-evolutionary forces could be false. You're going to tell us you have the answer to it already, don't you? We do have a preliminary answer, yeah. It's gonna, gonna be in our it's gonna be in our volume we coming get, out. We don't get to know this till it comes out. When is this so next I year? Can, I can tell you actually, because we've presented it already at, at, oh, yeah? at SVP. So. Um, so preliminary results show that yes, uh pronghorns were part of the cheetah diet. They were not they oh, were not the whole wow. diet, but they were part of the diet. So wow. it is possible that pronghorns were chased by cheetahs, and we're we've got to collect more data to know for sure. But preliminarily, it looks it looks like it might actually be true. So that's a cool case of evolution uh, between predator and prey. It's driving each other. So that uh, that yeah. fast cheetah, fast pronghorn. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's very yeah. cool. Yeah. It's an evolutionary ghost. It is. Got it it is. That's yeah. cool. Question. So, can you uh, go through the Pleistocene uh, felines that existed? Smilodon, cheetah, American lion. What, what what was their 
20,000 years ago. So no saber-toothed cats, believe it mm. or not. Um, we don't have any of those there. I wish we did, but um, I think it was too dry and open for them. They probably wanted more, like, trees and bushes to ambush their prey. But Or the smog of L.A. Right, or the smog of L.A. Um, <laughs> but we do have the American lion. We have the American cheetah. We have lynx. And for cats, I think that's it. No bobcat or, or well, we uh, have a lynx. We have a a, a lynx. A, a lynx is like um, a yeah. Bobcat, so we don't right. know whether the lynx is bobcat or whether it's Canadian lynx. Um, we right. haven't done the we haven't done the analysis yet, but we don't have any pumas that we know of, and we don't have any saber toothed cats. Right. So you you've done some work at La Brea as well, right? Absolutely, yeah. So saber toothed cats and their uh, killing technique is something that you've uh, thought about and worked on. Yeah, I've worked on their arms a lot. So I'm I'm really curious, you know, and I know there's been a lot of debate too about how did a saber tooth with those ridiculously long teeth and they're yeah. fairly, you know, they're like sabers, they are thin. How would they kill their prey and not break their teeth? What's how does a saber tooth cat bring down its prey? Um so very carefully. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, so they actually have to use their arms a lot. So one of the things that um, I figured out right after my dissertation was done is that Smile It On, the saber-toothed cat, has these giant beefy forearms that are like super strong. They've got bone. They've got thicker bone than other cats the same size. So what we're thinking is that they basically use their arms to just absolutely press prey down Oh, wow. And then they do a quick throat bite with their teeth. So they basically go in and out, basically just severing all of the uh, the blood vessels in the neck rather than suffocating. Very soft parts. Yeah. Rather than suffocating anybody like a modern cat would do, they they just sever and they just release and then they wait for the animal to bleed. They bleed them out. And yeah. So it's really that one, that fatal bite run a neck. Wow. Yeah. And so they're just brute. They just knock and... So they would ambush their prey. They're not super yep. fast. So that's right. why you don't find them in a natural trap cave. They'd leap on them, boom, hold them down. And then as the delicate cut to the throat. Ah! Yeah. Is there any pathology, any evidence of the delicate cut to the throat of a, of a prey animal? There is not. And that's part of the reason why we think that's what they did is because saber-toothed cats were evidently really good at avoiding bone with their teeth. And so there's not a lot of evidence oh. of it because all the damage was done to the soft tissue, more or less. Other predators are not so good at avoiding bone, right? Like dogs, hyenas, all those things eat bones. So they, they really yeah. do crunch on the bones. But the Smilodon just does not, does not kill eating bone. They might eat some with their carnassials, but they don't. What is a, what is a carnassial? A carnassial is one of the sharp blade-like teeth in the back. They're molars. Yeah, in front of the molars. Um, so one of them is a molar. The lower one is, a, is the oh. first molar, and the, um, the upper one is their last premolar. And they're just basically like scissors. They're the scissor teeth. Wow. Yeah. Man, that is something to imagine. Yeah. And isn't it, of course, it's, it's always the soft-bodied parts that don't get preserved. We have to ponder. Yeah. It's kind of mind-boggling thinking about those huge teeth and trying to eat an animal with those big teeth in the wake. Yeah, I think they I, I think they went down like this and like uh, uh, like the side of their face down and then Seriously? cut with their teeth. Yeah, yeah, that's probably how they ate. I mean, that's how a lot of big cats do it today, even without the big saber teeth. They just like... They eat sideways. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering if actually uh, with those sabers, if they... And they're, are, they're serrated too, right? The Some of them are, yeah, sometimes. Yeah, so you could kind of do a little steak knife action. <laughs> 
Is there a is there a predator prey evolution of a cat that has very small sabers, and as it grows over time, is there any predator prey relationship to the growth of these sabers over time? You know, that's a great question, and I I can't think of anything like that. I do know that um, what we do hypothesize is that saber-toothed cats had prolonged parental care because of the fact that when they're young, the, the cubs can't hunt very well with their little baby teeth, right? Mm. And so they probably stayed with mom for a long time. And in the case of Smilodon at Rancho La Brea, we think they were social. So we think they actually lived in big familial groups or, or big social groups. Wow. Mm. I love it. I can talk about this forever. La Brea is my um, home comfort paleontological site because yeah. I grew up in, in, in L.A. and that was it for me. Well, Ray, do you want to um, ask your really awesome question? Yeah, I'm thinking about visiting KU now. I get to go see all those bones from... Uh, well, you're close. You from NTC. I, well, I'm only about an hour away. I'm in Lindsborg, Kansas. Go. Go and... Do a video along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm really, I'm really interested in it now. But uh, well, thank you so much, Julian. I want to ask you this question, and we ask it of all our our guests. Mm-hmm. What exciting epoch? What paleo period? What awesome age? What favorite fauna would you want to see if you could time travel back, only back in time? What time period would you go to, and what would you want to see? So, I mean, this one is going to be boring, but it's super easy for me. Um, I mean, I am a Pleistocene girl. I want to go to the Pleistocene. I want to see a saber-toothed cat kill a prey animal. I want to see see a Colombian mammoth. I want to see a Western camel or yesterday's camel. I want to see, you know, I want to see a cheetah. I want to see an American cheetah, an American lion. Like, these... Things that I've been studying for the last 20 years, I want to <laughs> see these things. I really want to see them in the flesh. I want to see what they do. Well, you just might be able to see a mammoth in our life. I heard about that. Not sure how I feel about it, but I heard yeah, about it. Yeah, it's kind of weird, but yeah. Huh. Yeah, it is kind of weird. Yeah. What, what, but, uh, what color? Hold on, hold on. Well, wait, we can't just leave it wow. there. You heard about it. Ray, do you want to say what we heard about? What did we hear about, dude? Okay. <laughs> a uh, consortium, I believe, in Russia oh, wants way. to wants to resurrect a mammoth using DNA from uh, I think it's Colombia, a mastodon, and impregnate into an African. No, it's, uh, sorry, an Indian elephant. It's a mammoth that they're working on. I think it's a, a mammoth. Yeah, I'm not oh, sure it's if it's a woolly or a Colombian. Yeah. Well, that was. I was just wondering what color your American lions were. You know, that's all. Or are they? I want to know too. I want to know. I mean, they I'm might be assuming... white. You know, to match with the snow. It could be Dalmatian. <laughs> they might actually look like tigers. They may have stripes. Yeah. If they live in tall grass, you know, or right, they could be white. Like that's how they reconstruct them in the Yukon, because yep. it's so cold. That's right? why I've drawn right, them. Right. So yeah. Yeah. Right. So actually, well, well, before we leave this, how many more years of uh, going to uh, NTC? are in the future for you. Is this an ongoing forever project or what? It's an ongoing project. It takes a lot of money to go back there. So I definitely have one more year of funding. So for sure we're going back in 2022, provided that, you know, we don't have another pandemic outbreak or something. 
But uh, in the future, we are we are trying to track down ways to get more money to go back uh, for multiple seasons if we can. How much is a year of funding? Is it ten thousand oh, no. or fifty thousand? It's, it's you, in between. Can you not Somewhere say? between that. It's like um, I think we usually spend about thirty thousand dollars a season. And and how many people is that? That's about fifty people, not all there at the same time. Wow, and I am also wondering too because I've always want to. I'm worrying about my next meal. When you go down there, is like a full ser- food service down there. <laughs> Didn't you watch the video? Are there hey? sandwiches? We have to pack our own lunches. You pack yeah. your own lunch. Uh, I thought there'd be a little buffet over there. Well, my partner John, who actually is also an evolutionary biologist, but he's a molecular biologist. He um he's sort of the camp cook slash manager, so oh. he does a lot of our meals oh. for us. I'm gonna befriend but... him, and and so if Dave and I yeah. show up in our paleo nerd T-shirts and we volunteer for an afternoon, could we like do a deal with you? Sure. Yeah, we'll get to clean up and wash up. We'll do KP. Yeah, okay. yeah. You gotta get up the hill first, though, Ray. Oh yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm afraid of that at your age. <laughs> okay, let me ask my question. Now, there's been debate as to why the North American megafauna became extinct at the end of the Pleistocene. Now, one theory says it was human caused through hunting, mm-hmm. the overkill hypothesis. But a more widely accepted idea is that it was climate change. The end of the last glaciation coincided with the megafaunal extinction. Mm-hmm. Julie, you've excavated that boundary. You've spent five field seasons in Natural Trap Cave amongst the deposition. And obviously, you must have, in, in a downtime or a moment, of, of epiphany, you've pondered the ecology of the Pleistocene-Holocene boundary. Yeah. What do you think? Um, that's, it's, it's a hard question because I, I don't think that anybody knows for sure. But I will say this. I will say that um, climate does a whole lot of weird stuff at the end of the Pleistocene. Um, it gets really dry and really warm really fast. And I think that is a big deal. I also think that there is some record that there are human-mediated events also going on at that time. So I think it's actually, I don't think it's overkill by humans. What I think might be happening is that the hot and dry climate change is being exacerbated by humans modifying their environment rather than overkilling animals. Um, not to say that you mean fires, yeah, like fires, you, you, for example. Um, I don't necessarily think that humans were not killing animals. I mean, I don't have any data on that, so I can't really comment on how much animal killing was going on. But humans probably did play some role, although maybe it wasn't the role that everybody thinks it was. How fast did the North America go from ice-covered landmass to warm and dry. Within a couple thousand years, which doesn't seem like very long, but it, for geological time, it's super short, um, the temperature raised at least six degrees Celsius. That's drastic. Yeah. Huh. And so you could see, can you actually see from the pollen count? Yes. The shrubbery changing, the, the landscape literally changing? Absolutely. You can see the change immediately in the pollen. And in things like sediment, like lake sediments, you can see this change um, happening as well. Hey, I think this has been a really fun interview. Thank you, Julie, so much for joining yeah. us on Paleo Nerds. And you know what? You're going to get a Paleo Nerd t-shirt out of this. That's, that's amazing. That is <laughs> totally worth it. I actually just had a lot of fun talking to you guys, too. Thanks for contacting me. Thanks for interviewing me. I loved it. Our pleasure. Well, thank you so much. We'll see you in Des Moines. Sounds good. NTC, I'm going to be that guy showing up. I'm here. All right. Come on <laughs> I'll let out. you know.
Hey, Julie, thanks so much, and we'll, we'll see you around. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. 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 Well, that was awesome because I could just imagine these animals falling into this pit and dying and not not dying all at once, but lingering for a week it's, with a broken it's leg. It's sad it's and it's so, kind of yeah. scary. There's going to be like a vibe in that cave, man, that's like death. Oh, yeah. Death, yeah. man. <laughs> I, I don't know. It would just, it would kind of creep me out. Just, I don't know. It is the place of death in Wyoming. Yeah, but any fossil site is the place of death, right? Yeah, but this on. is the same spot over and over and over, yeah. Dave. It's cursed. There's a black hole there of death. You're right. Okay, calm down. Okay, calm down, it scares me. Well, wait a minute. La Brea is the same thing. It's a black hole of tar of death. They're dying out in the sunshine, this dark cave. With a little oh, hole up there, okay. just seems all right. It is. So I'm a it sensitive is, artist, but... man. I just relate to these. I'm an em... yeah, okay. I'm an empath, Dave. So, um, what did you get from this? What did, What is your takeaway that you didn't know before? Watch your step. <laughs> Actually, yeah. just to talk about that statistically, if you were looking, this is what happened to me once. I was once talking to a bunch of kids uh, about sharks and talking about shark attacks and how often they, they happen. And, and I had done research on the national safety boards, uh, statistics, and I wanted to find out these things that, uh, killed people more often than sharks do because sharks only kill about 10 people a year, but you would yeah, be surprised not many. at the number there actually is, is a statistic out there of number of people that die from stepping into a hole. Sure. It's like oh, a yeah. thousand people a year die from yeah. falling in a hole. So I was talking to the kids and I said, how many of you kids are afraid of holes? Right. And then they like, no. And then this one girl said, my dad died by stepping in. What? Yeah. Seriously. Oh my goodness. This, I was like, oh, I'm not going to use that statistic again. So yeah. holes are dangerous. Yeah. But you know, the idea that National Trap Cave is this incredible paleo site and basically it's Something you cannot visit. You need to know about yeah. it. But it's also it's weird. yielding so much information and discovery, too. But how frustrating it has got to be for them because that, that time zone, when the humans show up, is oh, missing. That was surprising. Yeah. yeah there's an 8,000-year gap. I wonder why, though. What if there was some sort of an ice plug, right? Well, there you go. Or a debris fall. An ice plug or a debris fall. Anyway... Uh, you know what? It would be great if you listeners have your ideas. Why was there a gap? Why don't you write to our uh, Facebook page and ask us? Actually, here's and, another uh, weird idea. Maybe humans showed up and they covered the hole. There you go. But they didn't step yeah. in. Because there's a grate there now. So you don't fall. So yeah. I do have a photograph of me standing on the grate. You know, so the great grate. The great grate. Yeah, right. I did great. it too. All right, Dave. Yeah. Hey, another great, uh, great program. And yeah, another great program and uh thank you ray from uh signing off, you're in uh signing off from Lindsberg, little sweden usa what? what they call it little sweden usa oh the uh king of sweden came here once and he proclaimed it so well that's so cool well i'm living and podcasting from ojai california where the oak trees meet the blue mountains and the chaparral meets the sea i want to be there but you know, it's rather pleasant here in Kansas today, so I'm going to go out for a bike ride, and uh, I might eat another Impossible Burger, you know, because they were oh, tasty. Good, good. Make sure you put your e-bike on zero so you actually get a workout and don't <laughs> cheat. That's not why I bought the bike, man.
Uh, I want to power up that hill. So, all right, all right, been fun, man, and uh, let's let's do this again very soon. All right, next week. See you, Ray. All right, see you, man. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. I'm a paleo nerd, don't you understand? I'm a paleo